Marketing success comes from identifying the right opportunities. And sponsoring the Up Next in Commerce podcast might just be the best opportunity you'll hear about today. With tens of thousands of listeners, expert creative, production, and strategic promotion teams at the helm, not to mention millions of impressions at the ready, this is a growth opportunity you should not ignore. Email me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with the Up Next in Commerce team. The bottleneck is basically where your business chokes. What's the slowest part of your operation? People kept telling me things that, and then I would say, well, how long does it take to do this? And I would write down the answer. And the numbers they gave me did not match with it being a bottleneck, which either meant that it wasn't the bottleneck or that it took a lot longer than what they thought. The key thing was keep digging, keep trying to understand. Because at the end of the day, the math will be the truth that you can use. But if your assumption is based on faulty math, then it's just garbage math. So you have to look at the operation in action. In recent years, Urban Stems has grown from operating its online flower ordering and delivery business in a few markets to processing and delivering orders from coast to coast. It's a D2C success story, but it was by no means an easy road to get to where the company is now. Scaling is one of the most challenging parts of running a business. Where do you allocate your resources? How do you enter new markets? And what do you do when disaster strikes in a way that could topple your business? Seth Goldman had to answer those questions and more when he took over as the CEO of Urban Stems in 2017. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, he spilled the tea on everything he learned along the way. Seth explains how to navigate through the process of scaling. He talks about finding bottlenecks in your operations, and he breaks down the ways to look at ROI when trying to break into a new market. Plus, he gives some insights into the best practices when adding headcount. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Hey listeners, it's Stephanie. Before we dive into the episode, I want to let you in on a little secret. Did you know that Mission has the number one e-commerce newsletter? It's amazing. It has really good news and insights and case studies that you will not find anywhere else. So go subscribe, mission.org slash upnext in commerce. All right, onto the show. Welcome back to another episode of Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder at mission.org. Today on the show, we have Seth Goldman, the CEO of Urban Stems. Seth, welcome. Thank you, Stephanie. Really great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. So for anyone who does not know Urban Stems, can you tell me a bit about it? Sure. Urban Stems is a six-year-old company that is the premier provider of direct-to-consumer florals. That's awesome. And how long have you been with the company? I've been at the company for about three and a half years. What brought you to Urban Stems and what was your background before? Yeah. So it was a person actually that brought me, the founder, Ajay Corey, is a dear friend of mine. And we both worked at a company called Quidzy Together, which was acquired by Amazon back in 2011. Mm -hmm. And we remained very close friends from that point on. I I went off to a company called HelloFresh. He went off to found Urban Stems, and we reunited in 2017. That's great. So what did you do at HelloFresh? 
I was the CEO of the U.S. business, helping to grow HelloFresh from its near infancy in the U.S. to uh, a much larger business. And it was a wild ride and we had a lot of fun doing it. That's great. It seems like a good company to get a lot of lessons from to bring to Urban Stems, like similar problems maybe or things to tackle. Absolutely. Both in terms of the app's uh, specific product, uh, a perishable product and a complicated supply chain, as well as I'd say the, the softer skills in terms of scaling a business, scaling a team and the challenges that come along with that. Very cool. So when you came into Urban Stems, what was going on back in 2017 and how's it changed since? Yeah. Uh, so when I came on board, it was it was great. We uh, Ajay brought me in and and asked me to help uh, beef up the operations of the company. Mm -hmm. I'd say as a consumer, the biggest difference between now and then is that you could only get Urban Stems in a few select cities across the U.S. at that point, and we made a big decision to go nationwide in early 2018, and that's uh, really helped us scale the business since then. Although we we really still love our city delivery. A method that we still have in New York and DC. Uh, it creates that really intimate uh, relationship with the customer and their recipient. And we hope to be able to do more of that uh, going forward. Now tell me a bit about how do you pick cities? I mean, of course, if it's started in a certain city, you're probably going to launch there. But like, how would you go about picking which cities to start in and having that city method that you're talking about is developing like a good relationship in that city? It's it's a pretty simple exercise of figuring out which cities are likely to have enough revenue uh, and an ROI on that city to get in there. So we believe there are probably around 30 cities that we could identify today that likely make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of which cities we prioritize next, uh, we would really rely on data. That data would help us understand what would be the revenue opportunity, how quickly we might get there. From there, we would also layer on supply chain. And we would try to figure out if that city was easier or more complex from a supply chain standpoint. Mm -hmm. And finally, we'd overlay brand. We'd try to understand if there were any idiosyncrasies of that city that made it more or less attractive. And then finally, we might say, does that city have any sort of non-financial strategic importance uh, to our business? Oh, great. Okay. So this is a very interesting topic that I actually have not talked to many people on the show. So I want to double click into all of those if you're happy to go there with me. Sure. Let's go. All right. So when you're picking your cities, you're talking about developing which ones have an ROI. And then, of course, like looking into a bunch of data for rolling out to the next cities. Like, how do you go about developing which cities will have a good ROI? Yeah. So the great news is that we have data to show what revenue we have in those cities currently. Mm -hmm. We would have to do a deep dive analysis of what zip codes we thought we could actually deliver to depending on the city, if it's a city that we could get in with bike messengers, as we currently do in New York and DC, mm -hmm. or if it's a city that would force us to rely exclusively on cars, which is not a major concern, uh, although we really love our brand promise of delivering via bike where we can. Yeah, it's fun. We would then use analytics to understand where we stand in each city revenue versus where we think we might be able to get to, where we start to have to look at uh, some proxy data. So for example, Google can help us understand what we believe our penetration in that city is versus a benchmark, say, of New York or DC, where we currently have our, our strongest uh, brand recognition. And that could give us some guidance as to whether, you know, if we're doing X dollars of revenue, do we think if we jump in, we could increase that by 25%, 50%, or more than 100%. And then we have to partner with the marketing team to understand what sort of a, a marketing effort would be required to, to get us there within 
you know, a year or 18 months to, to break even, which is uh, sort of a, not a hard rule, but that's sort of a, a general proxy of what we're going to be looking for. Okay. And when it comes to that marketing effort, what kind of channels do you look for, especially when you're launching in a new city where maybe you're not well known? And it's like, this seems like a city maybe similar to DC, but we've never been there before. Like, what kind of things do you explore to get those new customers and brand awareness? Yeah. So we we have to probably devote certain on-the-ground marketing campaigns. It could be as as simple as going to street fairs. It could be that we would take some sort of local radio or other sort of top of funnel awareness advertising out. Each city, though, is really going to be unique. I think that's something that we've learned. Even just having New York and D.C., we see small differences in the average order value. We see small differences even between, say, Manhattan and Brooklyn in terms of the percentage of flowers versus plants that the consumers purchase. So we'll have to do some research that helps us understand the consumer, uh, and then that would help us figure out which marketing channels uh, would make sense. But we almost certainly would be more comfortable getting aggressive in uh, awareness marketing when we jump into a new city because the return on that investment should be pretty strong given that when we get into a city, the conversion rate we would expect to be higher on our Mm -hmm. uh, e-commerce platform. Yeah, that's that's cool. I can also imagine if you have you know, bike deliveries, like if they had the backpack with your logo and beautiful flowers sticking out of it, like that in and of itself could be a great marketing tactic to spread word of mouth. Absolutely. That is that entire romantic vision is true, except hopefully for the flowers sticking out the back because they should be in contained uh, oh, yeah. packaging. <laughs> I guess but, they would just fly all over the place if they're just sticking out, huh? <laughs> but uh, we do have branded everything for our couriers, t-shirts and vests, uh, the coveted sweatshirts and hoodies. In fact, one of the downfalls of the sort of head of delivery was that he designed a, a hoodie that was too well-loved that, you know, not to accuse our corporate team, but they started taking them in numbers oh that gosh. they shouldn't have. So we had to <laughs> place an extra order. It's, it really is the most comfortable hoodie, but it accomplishes two goals, right? The first, as we discussed, is it's really nice branding and advertising for the company. Uh, the second is it helps make these employees in these remote locations feel more part of, of our broader and greater team and brand. Yeah, I love that. Are there any other on the ground methods like that that you're experimenting with or that you are hopeful of to you know promote word of mouth in maybe a new and different way? You know, I think that it's interesting in especially the last nine months, we probably pulled back on, on a lot of that for obvious reasons. I, I think that it's an area where we would experiment, but I think you also have to be careful because it's hard to measure the effectiveness mm-hmm. of that spend. It, it takes not just monetary resources, but really time. One of the things that I noted when I came on board in 2017 is that my uh, city managers were being asked to do a lot of these in-person events, and we, we hadn't really thought through how much of their time was being taken and how to think about them as, as an operations manager versus a marketing manager when we had a lot of work to do to scale the, the operations of the business. So I think people just have to be thoughtful and careful about the KPIs that they're going to measure people against, both the people who are responsible for budget, but also the people whose time is going to be taken doing these events. The good news is that the people love doing the events. So these, mm-hmm. these small scale events were very popular uh, for the staff that um, even after I told them that they should pull back. I found out months later they were still doing them because they enjoyed them, but then they would complain that they didn't have time for other things. So it yep. it, um, it it did have to lead to some uh, alignment meetings. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. So thinking about the next piece that you mentioned was layering on supply chain when rolling out into new cities. And that seems really difficult, of course, with fresh items. So how do you all go about thinking about that in a new city and building out a good supply chain that makes sure the flowers don't just die in a warehouse or something? A very sort of blocking and tackling for our goods is that you have to have a refrigerator. It has to be something that you have confidence is going to maintain temperature at around 35 degrees. Um, and you say so very simple things like just so you're developing any real estate, make sure you give enough time to build it out so you're not under pressure because it's it's hard to come back from that if you, you're forcing yourself to open up on January 1, but you just can't have the refrigerator installed before then, you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. So uh, making sure you understand your lead times. But for our business, I'd say the most important thing is understanding uh, the nodes in our network. So we have a, a larger facility in the greater DC area that helps service our New York and DC uh, same-day delivery locations. We have to think through as we branch out to more cities. Uh, so for example, Philadelphia, we could certainly service from the same Maryland facility with limited additional CapEx, with limited additional complexity added to our supply chain. As we think to the West Coast, or as we think to, say, the big populations in Texas or in the upper Midwest, uh, if we have a facility nearby, there may be synergies where we can pull product from there and deliver it to a local facility. I would say that the farther we get from our home base in terms of miles, in terms of being three hours and three time zones behind, it's hard to model it out on paper, but you have to start to acknowledge that the difficulties and things that could get lost in translation, you know, you go from having everyone on the same eight hour, uh, nine to five to only overlapping for five hours, that can just sort of add strain to the system. So have you hired, if you're going to go to the West Coast, have you hired someone? Did you decide that you're going to spend three months having them on the East Coast training up, learning your culture before you send them to the West Coast? Or are you going to take a gamble and just hire them on the West Coast and through more Zoom calls and maybe someone flying to California, try to build them into the culture and the brand of the company? I think those are really important decisions that don't sound like supply chain decisions, but ultimately really help you down the line when someone is going to have to make a lot of uh, executive calls that will impact your supply chain and will impact your ability to be successful or not on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis. Yeah, I think that's so important around building culture and the team. I mean, especially right now where everything is digital and companies are still having to hire and find the right people. And it's kind of hard over Zoom. I've interviewed some people over Zoom and it's like, you don't really know if you know them or you know how many notes they have in front of them or what's really going on. Like, how do you guys go about you know, building a relationship and hiring. And I think earlier you mentioned like having this like connection economy where everyone's on digital tools, but people still want to connect in the real world, but maybe you can't right now. Like, how do you think about that with teams and cultures and hiring new people? Yeah, that's a great question. And we actually have hired probably about half a dozen people since the lockdowns were initiated. And since our our corporate staff for the vast majority of folks have not gone into the office. And I'd say We had one key advantage, which was that before March, we did have a team that was split between New York and DC. So it was not uncommon for us to be on video conferencing. And Mm -hmm. so that transition was, to some degree, at least natural. In terms of the hiring process, I'd say the hardest part and one that we definitely still have not gotten right. And I'll be honest, for some small company, we didn't have it right necessarily before the the pandemic was uh, the, you know, the onboarding that... Mm -hmm. Uh, the team, though, has started to make 
headway. We've gotten our swag. We've actually pulled it from the various physical locations and people are getting a care package uh, now when they uh, are in their first week at the company. I make sure to reach out to new hires during their first week to just welcome them with a warm email and then tell them when they're you know, feeling no longer overwhelmed that we'll have a, a 30 or 45 minute call with no specific agenda other, other than really getting to know each other. And I can try to sprinkle a few of my, my thoughts around company mission and values into those calls. I think for hiring managers and or senior executives out there, I would also say it's not just you making sure you know them, right? If you have someone that you really like, how are they getting to know you and feeling, feeling it on both sides, right? So that, that you have an easier time convincing them to come on board. Yeah. Are there any best tips that you recommend to make sure that the candidates get to know you? Because especially over Zoom, it seems, I mean, it seems like people are always talking over each other, even with, you know, I was talking about earlier about internet, the video is not on, I had to turn it off. Like, is there anything that you guys practice to make sure that not only are you getting to know the candidates, um, but also that they feel comfortable with you and can ask questions and, you know, feel confident about that? Yeah. So we do as much as possible try to do video rather than just phone call interviews. I guess you could make arguments that that's better or worse, but it certainly allows people to respond to facial expressions, Mm -hmm. cues when it looks like someone is about to speak. So you can try not to talk over them. I do reserve the last 15 minutes of every interview to allow the interviewee to ask me questions. That's both for them. And also I secretly am looking to see how prepared someone is by the quality and thoughtfulness of of the questions that they ask. And if anyone is local, I will try to meet with them in person. We have to be thoughtful about that. Let's say we have two candidates and one is in New York and one is in DC. And we haven't crossed this bridge yet, but how do we make sure there's no implicit bias that we're pushing for the person that we met in person? But we try to have a variety of interviewers for each role. I think we've done a pretty good job with that. Very cool. So thinking through bringing on new employees, the first thing that's coming to my mind is scaling companies, uh, something you've had, you know, quite a bit of success with around HelloFresh and now Urban Stems. And I wanted to hear a little bit about how you think about scaling companies, whether it's at Urban Stems or HelloFresh or anything in the past that you've worked on. Yeah. So I think what I try to do is when I do have a moment to step back is look at each function within the business. I look what our plan is, where, where are we expected to get to over the next year, whether that's a, a revenue mark, whether that's improvement along other KPIs or important metrics. And I try to pair that against each function. Is each function at a point where they can make that leap without any additional people? Are they at a point where they can make that leap, but they'll need to improve just process? Uh, do they need technology investments in their function in order to be more successful. And we are nowhere near perfect on this, but each year we've gotten better. Our planning process is in the sort of June, July timeframe of talking through what that plan is and each team trying to think through what they will need to be successful there. I would say that stepping back where you run into problems and it's sort of dual-edged sword is if you put cash out and investments ahead of growth, you can get yourself in trouble. You can also get yourself in trouble if you put growth ahead of, of investment. So it is a, you know, a, a dangerous game. And I think when it comes to hiring people, we try to be thoughtful. It's also what level are you hiring at? That's, that's, that's something you'll often hear me say to the team if they ask for another resource. And to me, it's most important that we get that, that right level right. Very different to hire 
an associate uh, versus even someone with two or three years of experience where you're saying we, we just could not be successful. We hired someone just out of college. And I, my next question will almost assuredly be why? And man, you know, managing the specific work that someone needs to do against the experience that you're saying is required. You don't want to hire someone to senior to do junior level work. They won't be, they won't find it satisfying. There is such a thing as overqualified. And then on the flip side, you have to be careful what you can expect of someone more junior and what level of, of accountability and ownership you can place on them. So I think to me, that's the most important thing is, is making sure you're, you're hiring at the right level, that everyone is aligned, that this role is needed. And the reality is in almost any startup, you're going to have a whole slew of you know, resources that are not yet hired that people think are, are necessary and trying to at least agree on alignment on when those might get prioritized if something comes up that accelerates something, that happens too. That can throw a wrench in, in plans and you have to, to walk people through that that's happening and, and have conversations Well, hey, how did this new role cut in line ahead of the others? Yeah. So I've definitely seen that in the past. The previous companies I've been at, I worked in finance and every team always wanted headcount. Everyone always you know, had a reason and we're pretty good at justifying why they needed those people. So how do you go about you know, spotting those opportunities of like, this is an area that obviously needs investment. And I, I see growth coming after that. Like, how do you actually think through finding the opportunities when they seem like they're pretty hard to spot of like, what's holding what up to create growth or to create, you know, exponential growth in the future? Yeah. And I, I would say that you're sort of hiring for two reasons. One is growth, like you said, where truly there's a, a revenue or a profit or a customer experience opportunity that's not yet we can't go after because we don't have someone on mm -hmm. the team. The other is that we're, you know, I don't want to say things are crumbling, but sort of this more fixing the foundational type hires that you have a critical process that's, that's not being executed the way you want. That's where you have to start to like lean in and understand, is that a, a process, technology, or resource issue? Mm -hmm. And once you get comfort that that's a resource issue, from my standpoint, typically that's a pretty easy hire because unless you have invested in something that's causing friction that itself is not worth investing in, that hire will pay for themselves uh, financially because they're going to unblock something that, that is important to be unblocked. So that's how I get comfortable with those kinds of hires. Uh, on the revenue side, if, if it's creating something new, you can run ROI models. Sometimes you can do those in your head. Sometimes you put them down on, on paper. and then for other functions, sometimes it is a little bit of taking a risk, right? So for example, uh, it was about a year, 18 months ago that we decided we needed a, a stronger social presence. We weren't sure exactly what that meant financially, but we brought someone on board on our, our brand director, uh, Megan's team. After a few months, we started to really see results. We were really impressed. We managed to, in the last 18 months, 5X our you know, Instagram following, not that that's the be all and end all of, of yeah. KPIs. And then for the sort of CFO in me, we started to see revenue, directly attributable revenue, follow that. And I think the other thing that this is where managers have to do is they have to sometimes take a risk. They say, this is a resource I'm really asking for. This is what I think it'll return. And when they have something pan out, they are able to probably come to that next meeting with an ask with a little more confidence themselves and with the you know, me again wearing my CFO hat, me having more confidence to say yes to that opportunity. 
That's cool. I like you wearing your CFO hat. I appreciate that with the background in finance. (laughs) (laughs) So you just mentioned, which I'm now, I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, tell me how you grew your social because that is an avenue that obviously a lot of brands are relying on and it's becoming even more important with the ability to, you know, click and buy on social or at least it's headed in that direction. So what, what did you guys do to grow your social presence? Yeah. So the very first thing we did is, like I mentioned, hire a dedicated resource, someone who spends probably 75% plus of her time thinking through our social channels and, and how we can become more influential there. Mm-hmm. Second is once we started to see some results there, we added a, a SaaS software platform that helped us assess which visuals were going to be more engaging for, for our customer base. Mm-hmm. Um, we did those still have conversations. Interestingly enough, the photos that I'd say I prefer from a brand perspective, those with people in them significantly underperform those of just flowers. Oh, interesting. And this is a piece of tech that you guys were utilizing to figure out which ones, like which images would do best? Yeah. So I actually don't know like how precise it it is, but it, it certainly helped us. And we didn't need that to tell us that people underperformed flowers but even just different variants of a similar image, they were able to, to pretty convincingly predict which one was, was going to outperform. And hmm. obviously we are betting on engagement, at least these measurable engagement statistics mattering. I think one of the hardest things in, in social is understanding what matters and what doesn't. You know, So I, like I said, having our Instagram following at 150,000 versus it 30,000 where it was, we think that is directionally very good. Is that, can I quantify what that means for our company? No. Uh, Will we continue to push to increase our reach? Absolutely. How are we seeing that increased reach is translating into direct revenue? Yes. Is that our only goal? No. Do we know the the relationship between directly attributable revenue and non-attributable revenue? No. We have no idea if that even is the same month over month. But these investments that we made in a resource, uh, training her, uh, we actually at, some, at one point also gave a, a green light to bring on an intern uh, so that our full-time hire could manage up and start to add strategy to how she was thinking through, not just executing every day. And that's been great. And so we, we talked about that. How much is this going to cost? What is this person going to do? It was a, a pretty quick decision, but... Uh, because it wasn't a ton of money. But even there, uh, what I think is still critical is that someone comes with to the table with that analysis done uh, that's thoughtful and that they, they seek to justify any investment, whether it's $100,000 or a million dollars or $1,000. It just gets people in the discipline habit of understanding that that money is going to be invested or not across teams. And it's, it's not, uh, it's, there's not an infinite amount of it. That's very cool. So now that your social person is able to start managing up, what kind of tactics or strategies are they hoping to implement over the next couple of years? Like what are they saying they believe in or they want to try or test out? Yeah. So I think, you know, a big buzzword in social is influencer. Yep. You know, one of the, one of the things I've said is if Oprah came out and endorsed Urban Stems, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if that would even help us because our website would probably crash. We'd be out of stock on inventory in the next 20 minutes. Yeah. And we'd enrage all of our good customers who came back and saw us sold out. Yep. So we have to think through how we would even execute that. But the team is bullish um, that that matters. So we're trying to think through 
that. I, I certainly also believe in content. The team believes in that. So mm-hmm. uh, I expect that we'll invest more in content. It's no secret that video content is outperforms static photo content. So looking at that, but it's also no uh, surprise to anyone that videos are a lot more expensive to make yes. uh, than taking photos. So you have to figure out what your budget is. Um, you have to still be able to test very scrappily. I, I still will always believe in that. Some of the best content is always going to be UGC. Some of the best content is going to be filmed on an, you know, an iPhone or, you know, for suckers like me, you know, Samsung Galaxies. Mm-hmm. And it's about mixing that with the more professionally created content, figuring out where and when to spend bigger, both from a photography standpoint and from a, a video. So for example, the team uh, did a wonderful job this Thanksgiving. We have a dedicated landing page, which features uh, video for the first time on the site. And oh, nice. uh, really excited about that, testing it and testing more of that. And with everything digital, the the best thing is that you can always A-B test that. So even if you spent a ton of money on something, I still encourage you to, to A-B test it to ensure that it's working. And if you, you want to A-B test it at 80% with the video and 20% control without so that you get more out there, that's fine. It'll just take a little longer to get the, the results of that test. Yeah, that, that's great. I appreciate you letting us look into the future with you and your team. So I'm sure that you're probably like, oh, I don't want people bringing this up anymore. Like that's so three years ago. However, it came to my mind when you're talking about Oprah and, you know, if she were to endorse you guys and you could sell out and, you know, their website would crash. And it brings me back to, of course, what happened in 2017 that I think a lot of people could learn from who are listening around. I think there was like a Valentine's Day snafu where, you know, you had too much, too many orders and the website maybe crashed or something. Tell me a little bit about that and what you guys have, like what actually happened? Yeah. What are the details on it? I know you weren't there, but like, what are the details? What have you learned from it? And like, what, is, what do things look like today? Yeah. And no, I wasn't, but it's not, I don't think that's the sort of important part of the story. I, I think in three short words, we messed up, right? We did not fully understand uh, how we were going to execute the holiday it was unfortunate that it was on Valentine's Day, which is one of these two days a year that everyone looks to flower companies to solve their buying need, which is mm-hmm. to get flowers delivered. We uh, we were better at marketing than we were at executing that year. Mm-hmm. And we learned a lot. I think that that's the most important thing, which is we learned that we needed a, a more sophisticated plan. That plan needed to be backed by data. So what I... To be honest, this is why I came in. This is why Ajay asked me to come into the business, which was to, to help figure it out for the next year. So the first thing I did was I talked to people. I got, I got the stories. I started sharing those stories around to make sure that they, they matched with what people thought went wrong. Uh, I started to look at data mm-hmm. uh, and data helped uh, me craft a plan. One thing that I actually think I did really well is that we had the data and we had the plan and we just kept going over the plan. So I think that is one of those things that for people who like to move quickly can infuriate you. It's infuriated me at times. The number of times that I think we had to go over the plan or that we went over it uh, was well into the double digits, Mm -hmm. just reviewing and reviewing. But we were successful. and And it wasn't just that we fixed everything from the previous year. In fact, uh, we had to make changes that had nothing to do with people making mistakes. We had just pushed too many orders into certain physical facilities than they could handle. Our, our tech 
had not been robustly tested to meet the the peak needs by a combination of looking at data and incorporating feedback from people who had uh, gone through it, we were able to create a a plan that was, again, based in in numbers and efficiency metrics and a a realistic uh, execution, still stretch, by all means, we did not pull back. But to the credit of Ajay, he brought me in, he gave me the green light to bring in some additional resources, which I did. And we did some new things. We delivered for the first time in the company's history via a third-party uh, parcel carrier uh, that allowed us to take orders that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to take. And we had an on-time rate of about um, 98 to 99%. Nice. Um, so it was a, a nice uh, reversal from the previous year. And the way we phrase it with the team is it's three and a half years ago, so it's we don't dwell on it, but we, we, we do remember it and we remember it as a way of motivating ourselves to make sure that our plans have been vetted, uh, thought through, are based in data and have been shared with the team well enough in advance so they feel confident in their ability to execute them. Yep. So what are some of the biggest data points that you looked at? Like when you're coming in, you're like, let me review what actually happened. Like what were some of the biggest things that stood out where you're like, Oh, like, was it the website crashing because it was the tech stack? Was it the supply chain? Like what specific things were the biggest contributors that maybe any new company can learn from of like, oh, if I'm setting up a similar type business, I need to look for this, this, and this. If Oprah decides to come out and (laughs) give me a shout out. (laughs) Yeah. And and Oprah, if you're listening, we will still take, we will still (laughs) take the, uh, the shout out. Yeah. Uh, Send it our way. (laughs) But it, I think the challenge was when I got everyone, everyone thought it was everything, right? So yeah. it was really important to help people compartmentalize. It, I, it actually brought me back to a course in business school. I feel like in many respects, I was like one of the only people, one of the only ones of my friends who actually learned something in business school. <laughs> uh, I remember taking an operations course and it talked about a factory that made, I forget if it was chocolates or chairs, it almost doesn't matter. And they said it was an assembly line and it, and it took... Uh, a minute to make the first chocolate. The chocolate had to go through, it doesn't even matter, let's call it six steps that each took 10 seconds. And it said, mm-hmm. how many chocolates can you make in an hour? And I got it wrong. I said, well, you can make 60. It takes a minute to make each chocolate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out that there were six, um, like I said, six steps, each of which 10 seconds. So you can actually make six a minute or 360 an hour. And my mind was blown. Just, it was just really yeah. cool to figure out like how an assembly line lurks works, what throughput is. I went to a Chipotle just to observe it in action to find out what the bottleneck was and to figure out actually how a company like Chipotle does an amazing job at lunchtime. Uh, it's actually the cashier who typically mm-hmm. is the, the bottleneck. Uh, so you can see they add an extra cashier. Sometimes it's the first person who has to do both your burrito and the meat. So you'll see they, they have an extra person who just does the meat. So if you ever want to understand uh, operations 101 in action, go to a Chipotle uh, at, peak, uh, at peak time. Yeah, that's good. I'll be looking at Chipotle so differently now. It really, I just had to understand. And what was clear to me is they hadn't done that kind of analysis to look at throughput, how many orders can be packed out. And we also had to, people kept telling me what the bottleneck is. The bottleneck is basically where your business chokes. What's the slowest part of your operation? Mm -hmm. And people kept telling me things that, and then I would say, how long does it take to do this? And I would write down the answer. And the numbers they gave me did not match with it being a bottleneck, which either meant that it wasn't the bottleneck or that it took a lot longer than what they thought. So the key thing was keep digging because at the end of the day, the math will be 
be the truth that you can use. But if your assumption is based on faulty math, then it's just garbage math. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at the operation in action. So for example, with us, printing out these custom note cards, where it's, you know, your the note that you wanted for your mother for Mother's Day, right? That's what makes every Urban Sims order unique, besides the fact that you get to pick the bouquet you want uh, and the add-ons that are specific to your order, which took a lot of technological build, uh, hardware and software, to be honest. But it's that note card. And I was told, this is our bottleneck. And I said, well, how long does it take to print a note card? And they said, five seconds. I said, well, it takes a lot longer to pack out an order than five seconds. That can't be. But then I started to, to lean in. And it turns out that they would print 20 of these note cards at a time. And then they would organize these into a folder. And then they would put the folder away. And then they would bring the folder back out when they were ready to pack out. So what was five seconds when I did all the math ended up being a minute. And you couldn't even do them one by one, like in the chocolate example, because you were putting 20, you had to get 20 chocolates assembled at once. So you had to wait for 20 of those chocolates to go down to the end of the assembly line before. So if you ever got behind, the time to catch up was significant. That's really interesting about like something where you're like, oh no, that's not the problem. And then being like, oh, actually your process is part of the, like the biggest part of the problem. Exactly. And this is a very cool evolution. So with a bottleneck, you have two solutions. You either make it more effective or you add resources to the bottleneck. Mm -hmm. So the first year, that's what we did. We had five of like our most analytical people, five very smart people who just on Valentine's Day helped us printing. As absurd as that sounds, that's what we did. We just overwhelmed the process with resources. Mm -hmm. Uh, This past year, the tech team and the supply chain team got together and they completely reinvented. Every single order is sent to a specific person's queue that ties to their physical desk and there's a printer at every station and that printer prints out one note card at a time that's tied to that specific order. And now it takes five seconds to print a note card and it is no longer our bottleneck. Yeah, that's that's great. And it seems like there'd be a lot less um, room for things to get lost. I mean, if everything's in a folder and you're trying to sort through it, I'd be maybe picking out the wrong notes and you'd be like, hey, grandma, and be like, oh, that's the wrong note that got sent out. It seems a lot more like you're not going to have any errors doing it this way now. Yeah, the error rate, both reported and for sure actual declined. And we also saw that our throughput overall went up by 50, 60, 70%. And we could train people on this new system much faster. And those five people that I mentioned that had to be in that room on Valentine's Day now don't have to be in that room. Yep. That was very good reminders about bottlenecks. I think it's very encouraging for every new brand to kind of look into that and really dive deep. So yeah, I love that example. All right. So with a couple minutes left, let's jump over to the lightning round brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Seth? I am ready. All right. We'll start with the hardest one first. What one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? The one thing that will have the biggest impact on e-commerce is FedEx and UPS. Okay. Tell me a little bit more. Yeah. the Their ability to grow and sustain their supply chains and deliver on time is going to be critical to, in the next 13 months, they're going to have two holiday seasons and either a lot of happy customers or a lot of unhappy customers. It'll be really interesting. Uh, Your your 800-pound gorilla, Amazon, is highly confident because they've largely disintermediated 
uh, their over-reliance on UPS. In fact, they FedEx and UPS and uh, Amazon divorced for the most part. So I, I think that their ability to continue to shift to e-commerce, to add Saturday and Sunday delivery nationwide, uh, to do FedEx and UPS's delivery, to do ground deliveries next day, seven days a week based on a previous day pickup, all of these things are going to either allow e-commerce to continue to blossom or, or hold it back. Also, what's very unclear is how much they're going to raise rates in January. Typical years, call it uh, 3 to 6%. There is a lot of concern that they could be above and, and potentially well above that uh, 6%. And what does that do to demand? Yep. Yeah, that's a really good answer. What one topic or thing do you wish you knew more about? I, I always, uh, you know, I've, I've been in and around physical product e-commerce businesses. I, I think getting more in the data and technology side is always the right. That is that is always the future. So I love being in consumer businesses. I love the ability to ask almost anyone about uh, the product or service that I'm I'm working with uh, and and trying to lead forward and getting their opinion and having that opinion matter. That's that's the joy and the the challenge of e-commerce. But certainly getting deeper into data, getting deeper into technology is something I'm going to encourage anyone, especially anyone young, certainly what I'm going to get my kids into. Yep. I love that. If you were to have a podcast, what would it be about and who would your first guest be? I think it would be about brands that that do it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that I so admire people who build iconic brands and it goes back to this consumer side of things. but. It's to me. It's looking at the these revered brands and whether they are, you know, the Phil Knights of Nikes of the world, Reed Hastings and, and Netflix, or some lesser known smaller brands. I'm I'm always so impressed with people who take the leap to do it. Those especially who do it without raising significant amounts of capital uh, and create something that just clicks and resonates with consumers. Because I think we can all learn that. I. I find that I've been around companies that have done a nice mix of brand and execution that have focused so much on execution. I think it's something that I'm good at and I've been around other people that have been good at it. Uh, Maybe it's because of that that I I so admire the folks, uh, those creative, just truly creative visionaries uh, on the branding side. I love that. And who would you pick to bring on as your first guest? I, I, I guess uh, not that uh, Reed Hastings would agree, but Netflix. Might. <laughs> Netflix so transformed and based on an industry that could have gotten there had they seen it coming. And in fact, I think at some point he had discussed with them with Blockbuster buying out the business, and yep. they dismissed him. And I'm sure he has fabulous stories. And I'm not so interested in actually the last three years where they've been a powerhouse. I'm. I'm really interested in those first years when, when he struggled, when he kept the faith when things were not going well, how he saw the future when others didn't, how he pivoted from CDs delivered when he knew it was the time to visit to digital and, and build something big and special, how he hired people in those early years and got them convinced it was going to be big and special. Those are the questions that are you know, now getting the best and the brightest is, is easy. Uh, given the company that they've built, but it's those early years that I'd be really excited to learn about. Yep. Yeah. I love that. I think uh, we have the same kind of passion and you would probably like one of our other podcasts called The Story because it's about people like that. We did Reed Hastings, Phil Knight, we do Elon Musk, and it talks about the early days, like how they got started. And then you guess their identity at the end. 
because you wouldn't mm-hmm. actually know like all the things they went through to build the companies that they did. So I have to check that out. Very good. I will. All right, Seth, well, this has been a great interview. Where can people find out more about you and Urban Stems? Yeah, Urban Stems is the company name and it's also our website. So urbanstems.com will get you there. And if you want, you can also reach out to me, Seth.Goldman at Urban Stems. Be happy to chat with you. Be happy to provide you a, a promo code on your first order. So uh, we love people enjoying flowers. And more importantly, we love people uh, sending gratitude to people that they care about. Love that. Thanks so much, Seth. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Bye. everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. Upnext in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.